Well, last Wednesday seems like a long time ago. I do not know why. You know how time messes with you? Is it all the rain we're getting? Is it slowing down time? Uh, yes. But the last time we were together, we, we covered chapter 6, or a good portion of it, into the first two verses of chapter 7. And really, the end of chapter 6 was, again, establishing this is not a fable. This is not Greek mythology. This is actual true history. Just like the genealogy in Genesis 5 and the genealogy in Genesis 10 and the genealogy of Jacob's kids, we now in chapter 6 got the genealogy from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. The third son of Jacob was Levi, who happened to be the great-grandparents of Moses and Aaron. It tells us who his parents are, and, and uh, Aaron was born, and then two years later, Moses was born. These are men of history. This is a true historical writing. And we saw in the first two verses of Exodus 7 that the paradigm had changed because Moses was not willing to be the one to speak to Pharaoh. He was afraid. He felt unclean. He said, my uncircumcised lips. He felt he couldn't communicate very well. And he gave a lot of, I think, sincere feelings of inadequacy. But I also think he made some very bad excuses. But either way, after the Lord wrestled with him on this, as God often will do is let you win. And rather than getting God's perfect will, you get his good or acceptable will. And so he said, now it's going to be, instead of me being God and Moses, you being my prophet, it's going to shift because you have to be in the story, Moses. Because as we learn later, Moses is a picture of the Messiah. So Moses, you got to stay in the story. You don't have to talk to Pharaoh. We'll let Aaron do that. But now in the story, it's going to change a little bit. You will be as God and Aaron will be as your prophet. <laughs> I'll tell you what to say. You'll tell Aaron and that's the way you're going to go before Pharaoh. And this is the way you're going to speak. So really up to this far, we, we've seen a very stubborn Moses. But you know what? He obeyed God on everything. And then we've observed a very stubborn Pharaoh who, boy, is really oppressing the children of Israel since Moses and Aaron showed up with that word of God and even persecuting them. And he's very stubborn also, but boy, he rejects God. He rejects his word. Um, and he is just an oppressor of God's people even more than he already was. But remember, God had prepared Moses and Aaron for this. In Exodus 3, 19, he said, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. And then in Exodus 6, 1, the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand, he will let them go. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. So the Lord has prophesied and said, it's not really going to work up front. There's going to be a process 
and that process for a very long time, it looks like Pharaoh's winning and that God is not God and he's not strong enough and Moses doesn't have to listen to him. Remember right up at the beginning, he said, who is this God that I should listen to him? He was absolutely right. And, and God is saying, very good question. I'm going to answer that. And, and you will do what I say. And, and so it's hard, though. It's hard, nevertheless, that they've got to go and fell, if you would. But yet that's a part of the plan, is that it wouldn't happen right away. There would be a very difficult time before their deliverance finally came. Well, we're in verse 3 and 4 now of Exodus 7. And I will, future tense, harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land, but Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. Now, we have called them the ten plagues, but in reality, they're the ten judgments because they're judging the main gods of Egypt. They worshipped various things like the Nile or frogs or gnats or whatever it is, and God says one by one, these are not gods, these are lies, and, and so really, we call them the ten plagues, but we really should probably call them the ten judgments. In verse 5, he goes on to say, And the Egyptians shall now know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So he says, man, eventually I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and that is going to change the paradigm in which he will even get a harder heart, and then all of the, the mighty works that I want to do to reveal myself, and we're going to discover um, he says, I'm going to reveal myself to Pharaoh. I'm going to reveal myself to the children of Israel. I'm going to reveal myself to the Egyptians. And I'm going to reveal myself to the whole world through these plagues. God says all four of those things we'll discover. In Exodus 12, verse 12, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. I will select the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And in Numbers 33, 4, he said on all the gods, of, and the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had killed among them. And also on their gods, the Lord had executed judgment. Now, I want to stop here and spend a couple of moments on this thing that the Lord said in verse 3 where he said, I will, future tense, harden Pharaoh's heart. Because I almost gave you like eight pages of notes and put all of these references in there. I have them. If you want them, I'll email them to you. But I'll just try to tell you here tonight that he says that here. He said it earlier in chapter 4, verse 21, where he used the future tense there as well. He said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So yes, twice before Pharaoh ever hardens his heart, God says, I will in the future harden his heart. But understand that 10 times 
Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Eight of those times happens before God ever hardened Pharaoh's heart. A matter of fact, God doesn't actually harden Pharaoh's heart till after the sixth plague. So the first six plagues were all on Pharaoh's own stubbornness. But after the sixth plague, in chapter 9, verse 12, for the first time, God, judge, or God hardens his heart. Now, it's interesting when you really drill down and look at this. Because each time Pharaoh hardens his heart, or God hardens Pharaoh's heart, it's not the same Hebrew word. As a matter of fact, there's three different words that are used. One is Gaza, which means stiff neck. And then there's kabod. You might recognize kabod. That's the word glory or glorify. But it's translated hardened in this context. And then there's the word hazak, which is to strengthen or to strengthen the resolve of heart of a person. And that is the word mainly used. It's not God hardening Pharaoh's heart in a wicked way. It's simply God saying, if that's the position you want to take, I double down on that position you're taking. And I will demonstrate my power through your even deeper stubbornness than, than you already have shown yourself. So eight times, we're going to see four of them uh, in chapter 7, we're going to see um, them tonight, four times where Pharaoh hardens his own heart in verse 13, 14, 22, and 23. And then we'll see three times in chapter 8, in verse 15, 19, and 32. And then in chapter 9, verse 7, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then in 9, 12, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then Pharaoh hardens his heart two more times in Exodus 9, verse 34 and 35. Now, once God hardens Pharaoh's heart in verse 12, he hardens his heart six more times. A matter of fact, in chapter 9, verse 12 is the first time, and then in chapter 10, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 20, 10, 27, 11, 10, and 14, 8, God hardens Pharaoh's heart six times in a row. Now, the reason I say this is because the Calvinist, their doctrine is that God selects before time begins who's going to be going to heaven and who's going to be going to hell. And this somehow is to glorify God and his sovereignty. It's just a very evil formula, and it's just completely untrue. God before time says that whoever believes in him shall become the elect, he predestined that. And he also, before time, said, those who believe in me, I will predestine their life. No weapons form against them will prosper. Um, whatever comes into their life, I'll turn it around for good. So he is predestined, but he has not chosen who will believe and who won't believe. And he's already chosen people to go to hell because that's what he made them for. He made them for coals for hell. And this is exactly what they believe. It's a limited atonement. So when it says God so loves the world, the Calvinists will say, no, 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 it's the elect world. He says world, but he doesn't mean world. And then in 1 John where he says, and, and if you sin, we have an advocate 
with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is a propitiation for your sins and not for yours only, but for the whole world. That's also not true. That's for the elect world. This is what they teach. So they love this here, and they love Romans 9, because in their Calvinistic glasses, they tie it in and say, here's an example of somebody that was elected before time to go to hell. And this is why God has these people that he destines to go to hell, because he uses them as chess pieces on the board to glorify himself through their fact that they're not chosen, that the fact that they're going to hell, they're already going to be unbelievers no matter what. So it doesn't matter if he hardens their heart because they're going to hell anyway. It's not what's happening here. And a matter of fact, we are going to see God giving pleas to Pharaoh to repent. He gives pleas to the Egyptians to repent. And guess what? A lot of them do. And a lot of them leave with Israel and go to the promised land. Head that way. Interesting. Remember Nebuchadnezzar. What does that dream mean, Daniel? <laughs> it means that you better repent and humble yourself before God. Well, Nebuchadnezzar became like an animal for seven years because he was elected before the foundations of the world to go to hell. And that's why he became an animal for seven years, because God can do it. No, it wasn't at all. When he was humbled and broken in that situation, which was hellish, he became like an animal for seven years. When he came out of that, he humbled himself. And I think it's very clear that we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven as a believer. And so we're actually seeing that, that even though God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, doesn't mean that Pharaoh can't repent, that Pharaoh couldn't turn. And there are moments that Pharaoh is going to come very, very close. At one point, he says, guys, pray for me. He actually asked that. His heart was actually tenderized for a moment. So I, I, I wanted to go into that for a moment because it's a real pet peeve of mine how the Calvinists distort, I think, a very beautiful story with their Calvinism. We're going to talk more about that at another time. So in verse 6 now and 7, then Moses and Aaron did so. Just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. Verse 6 and 7 is a moment of reflection. First of all, he says in verse 6, you know what? These guys up to this point, it's not been an easy road for them. And I've told them to do some pretty hard things. And everything they were told to do, they did it. It wasn't easy. They weren't, they weren't the best guys to work with. They weren't these, oh, God, whatever you want, whatever you want, however you want, oh, God, I'm yours, you know. It wasn't like that. They, they went. They didn't like it. Every step heading to Pharaoh, they didn't want to be there. They didn't, they didn't want to have any part of this, but yet they knew that God still had called them to do it. Verse 7 says, now make a note of this as we're reflecting, Moses was 80 years old. And you think that's something. His brother Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So reflecting on us, you know, I actually had this sermon that I preached the last time I preached Exodus. And the title was, 
God still uses old guys. That was, or God uses two old guys. Yeah, we got a bunch of 80-year-old guys here. And, uh, honey, you're getting, getting close to that now. What? No. Um, but it's pretty amazing. So we have Chuck over here who's 80, and we have Jim who's 82, right? 83? We actually got an 80-year-old. In, and your middle name's Aaron. And your middle name is Moses? No, but you just came out of the water. It's been raining out there, huh? Chuck, who just came out of the water. So we do have an 80 and 83-year-old guy here. And he's just saying, stop and reflect on this a minute. This is, this is substantial. These guys got pulled into this job out of nowhere. <laughs> Moses did not see it coming. You know, God had to, it, it appeared that God had been trying to get a hold of him a while, and finally he did the old burning bush trick, and it got him, you know. Got him inquisitive enough. But as reluctant as they were, you have to say this. They always obeyed. They always obeyed. And, and, it, and it really is a, a powerful moment for us. You know, because it, it really is a, a, a very, very difficult job they've been given. And you know what? I would say in the same way. It's a difficult job we've all been given. If you're a young person, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, hey, don't let them look down on your youthfulness. And, of course, I think the, it can be said on the other extreme. Nobody should look down on somebody because of their oldness. But in 2 Timothy, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians, I, I love the way Paul says it here. I think it's very apropos. In chapter 2, verse 14 to 17. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us diffuses the fragrance of the knowledge, his knowledge in every place. You know what? I mean, some of us are out in this world like Mr. Magoo stumbling over ourselves, you know. And there's other people who are just socially unaware how we're affecting other people. And I know some Christians that they're just so on fire for the Lord, it's annoying a big part of the time. And then you got some really called evangelists that are amazing, like your Greg Laurie's in the world. But it doesn't matter if we do it good, if we do it weird, if we do it hokey or dokey or nerdish or whatever we do, incomplete or complete it is. It's the knowledge of Jesus, and he loves it. He loves the fact that the knowledge, this beautiful incense of him, is being shared. And that in and of itself, you have triumphed in Christ. Just because you're taking Jesus and not hiding him under a bushel, but you're putting him up on the stand so it can give light to the whole house. He goes on in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 2 to say, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one where aroma of death leading to death, to another aroma of life leading to life. And notice what he says, who's sufficient for these things? A good question. 
For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but in sincerity, but from of God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. We know we're not manipulators. We know we're not trying to be slick salesmen. We know that we are sincere. And honestly, is there any human being who could sell Christianity to a hard-hearted Pharaoh and win? Is there a person who truly needs to believe in Christ to be saved? Can a person do that, change that? No. The feeblest of message is, is sufficient. The foolish message, he just says back in 1 Corinthians 1, not second, we're in 2 Corinthians here, but back in 1 Corinthians, the first book, chapter 1, he says, I'm so happy for the foolish message that God gave us to preach. It's a foolish message, Christ and him crucified, but it's the power and the wisdom of God. And I just say, who's sufficient? Is Moses sufficient? He didn't think he was, but he was because he obeyed. Was Aaron sufficient? Nobody is. Nobody could do what Moses and Aaron were doing and be sufficient. This is the point. But the fact that they obeyed and said what God had said, they were triumphant. In 2 Corinthians 3, talking about this who's sufficient, he says there in verse 4 through 6, and we have such trust through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Interesting, in chapter 2 and now in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, he brings up this word sufficient, a total, I, I believe, of four times, at least three times. But he says we have such trust through Christ towards God. Think about that verse 4 for a little bit. <laughs> we have such trust through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything that's coming from ourselves. What, what is he saying? I, I don't, I can't wrap my brain around it. All I know is I can, I know the next step to take in obedience. That's all I know. Just take the next step of obedience. What do I do now? Oh, there's another step of obedience I can take. And what we will discover is that we are not sufficient. No human being is. But yet God repeatedly makes us more than sufficient for this thing. Through his spirit, he makes us sufficient to be ministers. Well, in 2 Corinthians 5, we won't read it, but it's a great passage, verse 18 to 21. But he clearly says there, we all are ambassadors of, for Christ through God we're pleading through us. We're all ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. So you, you hear Christians say, well, I'm signed up to be a Christian. That means I go to church Sunday morning and I go home. Now, yeah, I didn't sign up for anything more than that, did I? And then, of course, now I'm a mature Christian. That means I show up three times or four times a year to go to church and go home. No, we're, we're all signed up to be Moses. <laughs> what? Yep, we all are signed up. The moment you sign up to be a Christian, 
you signed up for the job of Moses. That we are going before our pharaohs in our world. Hard-hearted, evil people that are into darkness and sorcerers and enchantments. Into horoscopes and into, into every doctrine that will tickle their ear, they'll listen to. But the moment you mention Jesus, they freak out. That's us. We're Moseses. But I can't be a Moses. I'm not sufficient to be a Moses. Moses wasn't sufficient to be a Moses. That was his whole point. He knew what it would take, and he knew he wasn't it. You know what it would take, and you know what you aren't. That's okay, because Christ makes us sufficient as ambassadors. But notice there, it's not like, well, do you want to believe in God? No, I got to go. No, we got to stand there as ambassadors and let God plead through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. We got to plead. We can't just be a, a guy punching the clock and do the minimum. No, we are called, all of us, to be in that uncomfortable place as Moses was. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, again, won't take time to read it all, but boy, powerful, 1 through 5 there. And he finally ends by saying, we're, we're all, he really says, we're, we're all called to be evangelists. And then he says, you better evangelize while the window's open, because the window is closing fast. In 2 Timothy 3, he talks about the last days. And then in chapter 4, carrying on the theme of the end times, he says, for the times will come when they'll not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because of their own itching ears, they'll heap up to themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. And then he says, so be watchful in all things. Endure affliction. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. You think about Moses and Aaron. Be watchful in all things. Endure affliction. Boy, that's where they were. Do the work of an evangelist. That's where they were. Fulfill your ministry. That's where they were. All three places having to stand there. And they weren't young. They weren't your young whippersnappers with a lot of energy and, and a great uh, ability to, to debate. They were old guys who acted like old guys. But it was exactly what the Lord was using. Well, in chapter 7, now verse 8 and 9 of Exodus, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourself. Then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and, and let it become a serpent. We, we know this, right? He did this before the children of Israel. He had all three of them. Remember, the, the rod became a snake and then his hand went in his breast and it came out and it was leprous. And then he turned the water into blood. Remember, those are the three things he did to Israel. But now he's coming before Pharaoh. And, and God, in essence, says, hey, pull number one trick out of your bag. <laughs> and so in verse 10 through 12, there Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. And they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh because his servant, and it became a serpent. And Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers to the magicians of Egypt, they also did there in the like manner with their enchantments. 
For every man threw down his rod, (laughs) and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed their rods. And Pharaoh's heart, here we are, number one time, Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. So they did this miraculous thing, and and Pharaoh's standing there going, hey, guys, go go get the magicians. Go get the sorcerers, the wise men. Bring them all in here. And, And two of the magicians using their dark arts, their enchantments. The power of Satan, no doubt. Now, some say it could be a, a, you know, a trick, like we have a, a magician today, you know, the, the, the skill of the hand, the trickery of the, the moment, you know, makes it look like it happened when it really didn't. But it doesn't appear that way. It appears that they used their enchantments to do this. Boy, this is exactly what's going to happen. I believe it's going to start happening before the rapture happens. But for sure in the tribulation period, it will happen. Satan and his beast, he has several beasts in Revelation that do these things. But in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9 through 12, it says, For the coming of the lawless one, that's what they call the Antichrist, According to the working of Satan, notice this, with all power, 2 Thessalonians 2.9, with all power, signs, lying wonders, with all unrighteous deceptions among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness they wouldn't believe the love of the truth so they believed unrighteousness that's going to be the generation they're gonna they're gonna hate the things of god their ears won't oh that's horrible that's yucky i I, no. but then their ears are tickled when they listen to lies deceit and then when satan does these dark arts, these powerful demonic things that he has power as a fallen angel to do, the the king of the demons to do, people are amazed, going, oh, we must worship him. Well, all the way in Revelation 13, one of the beasts that the Antichrist has in verse 13 to 17 says, and he, that beast, performs great signs that even makes fire come down to heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So it's going to be a very confusing time because the powers are going to be happening. But this is an interesting thing. I think Aaron was surprised that they could do the same thing. But then when his snake ate their snake, it was a real sign of you have a power, but it's a lesser power. It's a, it's, it's a power that can easily be overcome by the true power of God. Well, now we end this chapter in verse 14 to 25 with the first of the plagues. So he skips the hand in the chest, turning it to to leprosy and puts it back and healing it. That one skipped altogether. But he makes the last of the three signs that he gave Moses and Aaron as the first plague that would start 
of the 10 plagues. So in Exodus 7, verse 14 to 25, so the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. When he goes out to the water, you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned into a serpent, you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river of the rod in their hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. And so that's exactly what happens. Down to verse 21, fish died, the Egyptians couldn't drink the water. And then the magicians of Egypt, in verse 22, did their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew harder, for they did not heed them. And then in verse 23, Pharaoh turned and went to his house, neither was his heart moved by this. So all, all the Egyptians dug all around the river for waters to drink, because they could not drink the water out of the river. And seven days passed after this, the Lord had struck the river. So um, <laughs> these guys are so funny, and, and Pharaoh's so funny, because it's like, guys, can you turn the water to blood? We sure can. They do their trick. But if they were a real power, they would have reversed it, right? That's later. It's like, well, can you make frogs? Sure can. No, no. there's already more frogs than we know what to do with. We're, we're, we're uh, tormented by all these frogs. And the magicians make more frogs, demonic ones. It's like, okay, if you were a real power, you'd get rid of the frogs, not make more frogs. But, but again, in, in their twisted mind, oh, yeah, we're equal to God. We can also do something horrible. So that's sort of the, the end of this chapter, and we see the first of the plagues. And, and of course, when we think about it, the water, the water's life, right? And Jesus says, those who thirst come to the water and drink. He is the living water. And of course, it's his blood that cleanses us from our sin, right? Without the the water and the blood, um, we would still be in our sin. But yet, it's what would overcome our sin. It's over what would come the sinful world. But I think we, we learn three things as I read this chapter. The first one, it's let's rest in the hands of a sovereign God. He knows all. He's all powerful. He loves us completely. God keeps telling him, guys, I've got a plan, and it's going to work out just as I said. You're going to go to Pharaoh, and he's not going to listen to you. And that's exactly what happened. And Pharaoh and our Moses and Aaron come back, but he didn't listen to us. He didn't do it. I told you he wouldn't listen to you. Listen to me better next time, okay? He is not going to let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. And, and, and over a process of time, when I judge Egypt, I judge their idolatry, I judge them for enslaving your people, and it's going to be a witness, not just to Pharaoh, not just the Egyptians, not just to Israel, but the whole world 
is going to understand me after this point. So remember, we talked about the end of Genesis. You add up all that God taught us about himself through Genesis, and it wasn't much. 400 years in Egypt, whatever they did know in Genesis, pretty much was very rusty, if not completely forgotten. And, and now it's like God saying, okay, from this point forward, we're just going to zoom it. They're, they're going to learn how, they're going to learn so much about me so quickly. And they're going to learn about me starting right now, not just getting them out of Egypt, but the process of knowing me and understanding me of getting them out of Egypt. And then my relationship with you, Moses, and then my relationship with them and, and seeing how I deal with them and work with them. And, and then the time you get to Joshua, take him to the promised land, and you ask yourself then, how much do we know about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It's like, a lot. A lot. We've really learned a lot about him. And so in essence, that's what he's saying here. And so we, we, we really, for the first time, are, 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 are facing the fact that we have an all powerful God who has a plan, who has a will, and you better get on board or this steamroller is going to run you over. And so that's the second thing. Let's obey. Moses and Aaron are a perfect example because we're not willing. <laughs> I don't, there, there's really nothing spiritually I want to do. I've got to force myself even now to pray, to read the Bible, to share my faith, to go to church, to Live as a Christian, it's daily denying yourself, taking up a cross, isn't it? But yet, they did it, even though they weren't fashioned for it, even though it came out of the blue, even though it was difficult, they obeyed. And then thirdly, don't be a Pharaoh, right? Don't harden your heart to God, especially his word. Let's stay humble, teachable, moldable in his hands. Amen?